listening and or watching Real Conversations with Jacob Young, sponsored by Boys Town. Boys Town has been saving children, healing families for over 100 years. Also by Lane Frost brand, made for the champion in you. And be sure to use Jacob Young 15 for anything and everything Lane Frost brand. Now, my guest this week is an Emmy Award winning actor who's been a good friend of mine for many years. He's been a staple on daytime television in the classic shows like Guiding Light, Santa Barbara, All My Children, Days of Our Lives, The Young and the Restless. He's helped create iconic characters like his Emmy-nominated role as Lou Jack on Guiding Light and his Emmy-winning role as the villainous Dr. David Hayward on All My Children. What you may not know is that he's also a classically trained pianist, a photographer. Yes, this week, I'll be visiting with my pal, Vincent Irizarry. You know what time it is. It's time to keep it real with Real Conversations with Jacob Young. Vinny, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, brother. How you doing, Jacob Young? Good to see your beautiful face. It's good to see you. Speaking Un- of- unshaven. I mean, shaven. That's very different than last time I saw you. Yeah, I know. Um, so you got to switch it up. You got to keep people guessing. But man, you speaking of beautiful, you look beautiful, man. You look great. Well, well thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm feeling really great. I'm feeling good. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you know that I've had some, some, um, some physical issues over the last few months. Um, I had to have a craniotomy done. <laughs> yeah. Um, just a, a little over a month ago. And uh, because I had a hematoma that had developed in my head after an assault that took place in um, early December. Um, Which you were going to the defense of a woman that was in it. It was because I'd read about a little bit, but right. somebody was physically abusing. Somewhere. It was it was escalating to that point. And I just want to put this out there because some people have been writing about me being a hero and everything. But that I that's an overstatement. I'm, I just want to make that very clear. And the reason why I would define a hero as somebody who knows that they're stepping into danger, but they do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. I knew it was the right thing to do what I was doing, but I had no idea that it was going to develop in the direction it went. I knew the two people. Um, they both were drunk. One of them, the husband, got thrown out of a bar right before that from, with the bouncers because he was getting into an, an altercation with somebody. Um, and when I went into the parking lot, they were, they were he was becoming very volatile with her. And I literally just approached him as somebody who knew them to say, calm the fuck down. Is that, I'm sorry, am I allowed to do that? To say, <laughs> One time, that's it. I just basically went up to say, hey, man, just hey, man. calm down. Yeah. Man, calm down. And he literally turned around and punched me right in the face. Didn't expect it. Never imagined that was going to happen. Fell to the floor, banged my head on the pavement, ripped my head open. Um, I was unconscious. Then he turned on his wife and beat the hell out of his wife. Oh. Broke her nose, broke her tooth, and was kicking her on the floor. She was unconscious. We both had staples in our head. I had four. She had three. Yeah. Um, brought in separate ambulances. That's when I came to in the ambulance and with my hands bloody, my head bloody. And going, what the hell is going on? And they yeah. told me what happened. Um, but thankfully, I it was like within two weeks, I was feeling very lightheaded and my balance was off. I decided to go to um, a, a cardiologist, uh, not cardiologist, a, a neurosurgeon, neuro, neurologist. Neurologist, yeah. Um, and she did um, an MRI, and it wasn't too concerning at first. She saw like four millimeters of fluid, and she said that could easily be absorbed, but she wanted to do a follow-up in the weeks ahead. And about a month and a half later, I did a CT scan and had grown from four millimeters to 28 millimeters, Ooh. pressing up against my brain, pushing it to the side. Yeah. And that could cause seizures. It could cause a, a heart attack. 
um, yeah. a stroke, any number of things that could die. Um, it, actually, Bob Saget, that's what they say happened with him. He had a head injury and that had happened. Yeah, he, and, and not really knowing what was happening. Right. Yeah. So thankfully, I did do that. And the minute she's got the CT scan and it was 28 millimeters, she called me like less than an hour after I had that performed somewhere else. And she said, we got to get you to a neurosurgeon right away. Um, you, this is serious. So I went and saw this amazing neurosurgeon, Dr. Jared Amon, and he's uh, on staff at Cedar sinai And he saw it and he showed me the imagery. And I was like, wow, this is freaky. Um, and he um, said, yeah, I got to get you in right away. So he, he set it up with Cedars that I was able to go that week on Friday and do the procedure. He did an amazing job. And I'm very grateful that I had very long hair because you wouldn't even have seen the 23 staples in my head. Um, I thought I was going to wear a hat more for, for weeks. And I was like, wow, I don't have to wear anything. He did, this thing. He did a freaking massive job with just a strip going off the top of my head. Um, but the follow-ups have been great. I just had a follow-up CT scan the other day. And it, my, my neurosurgeon called me, said, hey, you look, uh, it looks amazing. Everything, your, your brain is expanded back to its normal position. I had another doctor's appointment today with a neurologist about the potential of doing a procedure it's called MMA embolization, where they run a catheter up your artery to your brain. And they basically blew the spot where you're having the hematoma. So it, it, it prohibits the potential of a reoccurrence which does happen sometimes with hematomas. Yeah. But he said, I definitely don't need it. My brain looks great. I'm feeling good. I'm not, my imbalance is not there anymore. It was getting you, really bad. You look great. You sound great. Well, We're so you. thankful. Thank Kristen keeps telling me, how can we get your brain to expand just to a normal position? <laughs> it's true. It's just, well, <laughs> as we get older though, Jacob, your brain does start to shrink, you know? So I actually have an image that was uh, that I took today from my doctor. He because he showed it to me, and I said, well, "I got to take a picture of this." Let me see. I'm going to show Let's it, see to, it to everybody. Oh yeah, it's um, it's really funny. This is my brain right now. Just so you know, okay. I'm going to put this on there for you. Okay, that's my brain right now. Everything it's supposed to be a mirror image. Everything's in place. All Looks right? good. Looks pretty I'm good. Show you the one that preceded it. This was the one just a few weeks ago. Um, this was, the, if you see the on the side over here, that's the... On, oh, below. the damage it's, right there. Yeah, it's off its center. Yeah. And that was after the procedure. So it wow. was growing, expanding back into place, but that was where the hematoma was on that side. Yeah, where it was uh, building up. Boy, that's really, I'm, I feel like I'm being so, uh, uh, I'm just transparent. <laughs> no, I'm hey man, you, you know what, you know, but, I, I, I'm, you, you know, this was going to be one of the questions we're going to talk to you about, but I, yeah. I'm so thankful that, you know, you're, you're back, you're feeling yourself Thanks, and you know what yeah. I do have to address and you, you're, you've always been this way. You're very, very humble. You are a hero. You've been a hero of mine. You've been a hero to a lot of people for many years. You're a really oh, gracious sweet. human being. You're a kind human being. And, you know, yeah. this day and age, we need more people just like you. So um, in, yeah, in, my, in, in my words, yeah. you are a hero. So thank you for oh, doing what you, you did. I appreciate and, it. That's um, very sweet of risking you. Your, risking I, your I mean, But I think that now it's, because it's official. I'm, I'm officially a head case. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> well, well, well we definitely know you played a, a few head cases. So speaking of I head cases, have, man, I've definitely played <laughs> a few head cases, <laughs> and, but they've been fun. They've been great to do. I love those roles. As you know, I mean, you yourself have played a few head cases yourself. Well, they were like <laughs> typecasting. Sure. 
They said, hey, I'm just putting my, my thing on do not disturb because I heard it vibrating. But yeah, um, no, I've been typecast. That's the, the only reason why I got to play those. They're like, oh, he's perfect. Yeah. He's perfect. He can play now that you, role. You, you recently did um, The Walking Dead, didn't you? Yeah, I did a couple episodes of The Walking Dead. Amazing awesome, time. That's awesome. Good for you. Yeah, Good for you. yeah a lot of fun. Uh, Norman Reedus was a gentleman and... Uh, I, fortunately I got to hang out with him like pretty much the whole time, but the whole crew that we, you know, we were working with, which we weren't, we weren't zombies. We were guys that had been living in a, the same world that that just, yeah, yeah, sort of apocalyptic, another whole realm, which is actually pretty, Uh pretty cool because out of nowhere, about three weeks ago, um, uh, the showrunner, Angela Kang, she started following all of the guys that were playing and this woman doesn't just like follow people. Like she's got like a thousand following people that she follows and she's got like 200 and some thousand followers. So I was wow. like, I was like, well, yeah. there is this little spinoff series that's happening called uh, the tales from the walking dead of the wall or something cool. like that. And, and uh, I'm thinking maybe there's something there, but out that's of awesome. all Good, the man. roles that you've played, has there been a favorite? Well, I would say certainly Lou Jack was my introduction to working in television. Um, and at that time of my life, that, that stage, I, I really felt like I could identify with that character on a very deep and personal level. Um, I would say that Dr. David Hayward was the first character that I had after that, that I would say rivaled that because I loved, I mean, I, the difference between Lou Jack and um, Hayward was that they, it was like, Hayward was like 13, 14 years, and Lou Jack was two years. I left, it was my choice after two years to leave the show. But for 14 years to have the ability to develop a character like that, and he took so many twists and turns, and he became such a multifaceted and really complex character, and I loved performing it. He was wonderful. But, you know, it's just, there's so many things. I, I did a Western recently. Um, which I never thought that I would do a Western. I didn't know until the COVID happened and I started growing a beard and had long hair. <laughs> and I even said to my girlfriend, Yvonne, at the time, I said, I think I could do a Western now. <laughs> I had that look, yeah. you know, I looked like we were, I've I was grown like, oh, the Sam was. Elliott mustache. I qualify. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I did. And my first audition was like two weeks later on zoom and it was for a Western and I got the part and I loved playing it. I loved playing that. I had such a good time. Um, you know, but every role I I love doing, I love having the opportunity to bring a character to life. You know, I mean, you know what that's like. It's, it's very exciting. It's exhilarating. And it's just, it, it feeds off of my personal creativity that I have. I feel that I've always been a creative my whole life. And um, so I'm always excited to be able to stick my teeth into something to another role. It's fun. Yeah. There's something that truly like when you, when you, you get a role or you find a role and it finds you or the director finds you and suddenly it's there and it's in front of you, there is that exhilaration. There's something that's so wonderful and it's almost like, as an artist, you know, this almost a requirement to your, just that inside juju, that thing that happens inside of you. Like it makes you go, this is what I love, but this is what I need. It feels, it 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 you. you. It does. It brings you out. It brings the life out of you. And I just love that. I, I loved shooting a movie left to die with Barbara Hershey in, um, in Columbia, Bogota, Columbia. That was another role. I loved playing that role. He was a great character. It's a true story. Um, and uh, you know, a tragic figure. Um, 
And I just, I loved it. I loved playing him. Um, he didn't come off the greatest in the story, but I, you know, I had certainly a lot of empathy for him as a character, um, as a person in real life, a real life person for the struggles that he went through. And the course that he took was as a result, direct result of his, what was happening to him. Um, so yeah, he, he didn't come off great um, as a person for what he had done. Um, to the Barbara Hershey character, but there were reasons for it. And I, so I can have compassion for him. How do you go about um, finding humanity in a character like that? Love that. I love, you know, it's like finding the pathology of character. It's certainly David Hayward, had that, you know, and finding humanity. I mean, it's really what you're doing is you're breathing life into the words. Um, that's basically it. You're putting flesh and bones on it. And I just, I love doing that. I love doing that. It's, it's an exciting process. You know, um, so that's it. And it's different. I mean, I know you've done theater as well. And, you know, theater is a really interesting, um, totally different than I did six years of theater before I ever did television. Blue Jack being the first role I ever did on TV. But prior to that, it's a totally different experience because every night is a different performance, yeah. you know, and every night you're going through that simultaneously with the audience right in front of you. They're experiencing it. You're sharing that experience together and it's exciting. There's another sense of exhilaration that you get from that. And at the end, it's like they applaud you, but you could applaud them too, because they've been a part of the experience with you. Yeah. When I first worked in television, it was very different because now I'm working on a set with a crew and people are watching on the TV weeks later and you don't get that back and forth input. It's not until people start sending you letters and telling you what they felt or you did the personal appearances. That's when you get the experience from them of how they're relating to the character and the story. Yeah. Uh, very different. Very different. It's a, it, You don't have the immediacy that you have in theater. And yeah. I love that. There's something very special about theater where, yeah, they are intertwined with you through that, through that, mm -hmm. you know, every day that you're doing it, it's different. But yeah. shifting slightly shifting gears, you started playing piano at a young age. Yeah. What maybe prompted you to switch careers from maybe being a musician and going sort of a, as a full-time actor? Was there a defining moment? Yes. I was actually going to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and I became very close friends with my English teacher at the time. Um, his name is Ryland Brenner. And he was like a post-beat poet. I was writing poetry, so I was sharing my poetry with him. He was sharing his with me. And I was friends with a group of us. We'd all go out and have beers together, go out and have pizza, you know, um, steak, do the steak and cheese hoagies. We'd do that on a regular basis and hang out. And he started a theater company in Boston. And he asked me if I would like to um, ever, ever thought about acting. And, you know, at that time, I was only like 18 years old. And I had always loved um, movies, um, even theater. My parents took me to go see theater when I was a young kid living in Queens, went to see The King and I with Bill Brenner on Broadway. I was like five, six years old, mm. you know, and other plays as well. So, but I always loved movies. And my brother Frankie and I would sneak downstairs after my parents went to bed and we'd sit right in front of the TV screen, watch the late show and the late, late show with like Jimmy Cagney and James Stewart and Gary Cooper and all these people. And um, so when he asked me that, I said, you know, it's one of those things I've always had a curiosity about, but I haven't had a chance to get off my backside and do anything about it. So he said, I have a role that I think you'd be really good for. And it's called, um, it's from a play called Death Watch, John Genet. It's a one act play, three person, uh, three roles, one of them. And he said, read it. Tell me what you think. 
Mm-hmm. I read it and I loved it. It was a very dramatic play. My character was really dramatic, um, really intense. Wound up killing. It's three guys in the jail cell. And through the whole play, <clears throat> winds up strangling one of them at the end of the play. Um, and he's basically, and at that time I was going to school at Berkeley and I was, I was really becoming isolated because I was studying piano, practicing my piano five, six hours a day in the room, the size, the room, the size of a piano in me. Mm. And when I left, I was very kind of withdrawn from people socially because I was totally like, you know, I had the blinders on. Um, so having the opportunity to get up on stage and have this meltdown and breakdown emotionally, it was for me, it, it was cathartic. It like, this was an experience and I fell in love with the process of it, of bringing the character to life. Being in that place with the blinders, the piano, sure. and then having that opportunity, was it hard to get to that emotional release? It wasn't. That's what I, it's interesting that you would ask that because I think allowing myself the freedom to let this person, this create, this created character come to life. And I think it's, it's like giving permission for that person to breathe. That's how I feel about it. When I'm working on a role, don't apologize for who he is and what he does allow, give him the permission to be who he is and doing that, allowing myself to do that. It opened me up entirely. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. That was so, because I was becoming very antisocial at that time because of the fact that I was studying so much and um, it just opened me up and I fell in love with it. So I started auditioning for other plays around Boston and I was getting them and getting roles like a Moliere play and a Moliere play and, um, and a few other ones that did a no coward play. And then I decided to, to withdraw from music college in my second year and pursue acting. That's what I did. I know it's kind of a lateral move um, to go from music to, from music to acting. You know, I know, but like, you know, but like the, but putting it that way and like you were just completely encompassed with piano. Sure. You know, it, I mean, yes. I mean, as musical theater is concerned, yes, it is a lateral move. But for you, it seemed like it was a totally different realm altogether. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's interesting because I would say there's the other contributing factor to it. I felt like I was, I was really good at the piano, but I wasn't as amazing as some of the other people at my school and as musicians, I was Berkeley college of music is considered the, that's the, one of the, the most elite school yeah, for jazz worldwide. And there were musicians coming from all over the world playing and there were some amazing musicians that I was working with and I was there with. And I, you know, it's interesting because I did, when I did Harvard Ridge with Clint Eastwood and we were down in Grenada, well, not Grenada, we're actually on the island of Vieques, it was supposed to be Grenada. And um, we were, there was a set where it was where the students were being held prisoner. It was a piano there. And one day I sat down at the piano while they were setting up and I started playing the piano. And then Clint walked over. And he says, wow, that's great. And you, you know, the piano said, yeah, that's pretty that. good. Yeah. He said, oh, that's really good. That's that really good. Great. Play that again. And I said, and I said, I know you're a piano player, right? And he says, yeah, I said, yeah I'll play some for you. And he sits down and he plays this, this piece. And he tells me that it's the, um, the closing credits that he wrote for the music for the uh, movie bird. Okay. So, and then after I said to him, well, did you start with music first and then go into acting? And he did exactly the same thing. 
And he said, I said, so what made you go to the transition? Similar to what you're asking me right now. (laughs) And he said, you know, um, when I was a kid and I was playing piano, I knew I was good, but I didn't think I was as good as I needed to be. And he says, and my father always told me that a man should know his limitations. So that's what he said to me. And I, I was like, I related to that. It's 100%. funny you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I said, oh, my gosh, man. I, I felt like I, this was like a, a kindred spirit in that, in that sense. So it was pretty cool. Very cool. Well, speaking about acting, you had the privilege of studying with the iconic acting guru, Lee Strasberg. Sure. What is, for the people that don't know, the Strasberg approach to acting? Well, he's, it's called the method. You know, he's, he was like considered the method acting. And, um, uh, he, you know, went to study with the Moscow arts theater. Um, when he was the, the actor studio, they would go there and, and spend like, you know, months at a time and study with, um, what's his name now? I can't remember his name. It's the, the famous Russian. Oh yeah. Colonist. Uh, you're thinking of, um, uh, In so many years ago, yeah, he said his yeah, name. Yeah. But yeah, but he was a, Famous yeah. um, teacher there. Who taught Brando, taught, who taught, taught James Dean, yeah. taught Al Pacino. Yeah, well, that's what, well, yeah. well yes, he did. Um, uh, Lee Strasberg did yeah. at the, the after studio. And um, he, uh, anyway, it's it's basically really like Stanislavski. The, life of the character. Stanislavski, that's it, Stanislavski. I knew it would come to me. At least I had a head injury, so I can. I, can I know. I, mean, I, I have a head What's injury. It's excuse? because I have a glass of wine in my hand right now. That's my head injury. <laughs> there you go. I haven't gotten to that point today yet. I'll get to it later. Um, it's earlier here on the on the West Coast. Uh, but anyway, so he, that's his approach, and yeah, it was for me. It pushed me into a professional career rather than amateur career. I was I was living at 13th Street Theater. Um, a rollout mat every night um, in the dressing room. I lived there for six months and I was doing plays there. And um, I did, I was doing um, the Indian wants the Bronx. This were Harvard's play. And the teacher came to see the other actor I was performing with. He studied with her professional class, um, Elaine Aiken. She came to, and you had to be invited into her class. And she came up to me after she said, I would love to have you in my class. If you want to come. And I went, I started studying with her. And it was at that time that she said I should study with Lee. He was coming back from L.A. He had his classes there. He was coming for months. Just, yeah, and I'm like, I couldn't afford that. I was living in a theater on floor. And um, so she had Anna, his wife, come to see me do some scenes in class. And they gave me a full scholarship. Oh. So, And it was after that, doing that, and Anna and Lee... They invited me to his house for his 80th birthday. They invited me for his son, uh, the son, I think it was Adam's bat mitzvah. And I'd go there and it would be Al Pacino there and all these other people. And they invited me for his 80th birthday because they wanted me to meet a few agents. And um, that's when I signed with my agency, APA at the time, and in Bruce Savan. I was doing a play in New York um, called uh, Every Man with the Classical Theater Ensemble. I was the lead in it. It was a real spectacle at St. John the Divine in the nave of the church. And it was like a wonderful medieval morality play. And it was a real great showpiece for me. And Bruce came to see it. And he came up to me after he says, definitely call me tomorrow. I will sign you. And I basically signed was with them for nine years. So it launched my professional career after that. And thankfully to Lee and Anna. Yeah, definitely. Wonderful. You're one of six kids. 
Were there challenges growing up in a large family? Um, I I have a very close family. Uh, My my brothers and sisters were very, very close. And I, uh, you know, I literally feel that my brothers and sisters were heroes to me, are heroes to me. They've always been there for me, um, even during very difficult times that I've sometimes had in my life. Um, I know I can always count on them and lean on them. And they have been there as I would be for them without question. Um, so there was no difficulties in that. Um, you know, it was, it was tough. I mean, we lived in Queens for the first eight years of my life and my parents, they, they struggled. I mean, they started, they, they eloped at 15, 16 years old and created a family of six kids. By the time, the time they were, uh, they were 30, they had six children. Okay. I had my first at, at, at 30, my yeah. first. Can you imagine? Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, they were, they were 21 when they had me, I was a third child wow. and I wasn't mature enough at 21 to, to raise a dog yet, honestly. So they were children having children and they sacrificed their youth to raise a family. Yeah. So especially in the early years, it was tough. You know, we were living in a two bedroom apartment with, with four, at one point, finally five kids. Um, and, but thankfully they were able to scrape up enough money and buy a house on Long Island. At that time, it was like 28,000 for a four bedroom. That was not a steal back then. <laughs> that was no. still expensive. <laughs> I know. I had 28,000 for that house, which is probably gone for like 700,000 today. Right. I know. I know. Honestly, that's probably what it is. And, um, yeah, but we, they, my parents, I, I, they did everything they could to provide for us, everything they could. They, my father had, drove to work on white plains from Long Island every day. It was like an hour and a half each way. Um, you know, so they, they really sacrificed a lot. You know, it's a great thing. It was a, the thing about my parents were that they gave us everything we needed, but if there was something we wanted, then we had to work for work it. For it. You know, right. that was the ethic that we were raised with. Right. They put food on our table. They put clothes on our backs and put the roof over our head, the things that we needed, that's what was most important. But, and the example of that is when I first wanted to study piano, I went to my parents at 11 years old and I said, I want to study piano. Um, I really had a desire to learn music and um, I thought it was okay. We'll pay for your lessons. Um, Cause it was a teacher right on the block. I had found out about that was like $10 a lesson. And he said, we'll pay for your lessons, but you have to find a place to practice to find the piano. I'm going how, how am I going to do that? And he says, if you really want this, you'll find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, because I'm not going to buy a piano. And then three months later, you want to study anymore and it turns into a piece of furniture. And I understand that. Certainly when he said that, I said, okay, I get that. Cause that does happen a lot. Um, so I was grateful that I found a way to do it. And it just worked out. It was a, a woman around the corner from me. I was friends with her two older daughters that her husband had just died literally about a month before of a heart attack at 40 years old playing softball at the street. And I was there at their house when the cops came to tell her. Um, so I knew them very well. And I knew that she was totally lost right at this moment, having lost her husband and now a single parent of three daughters. They had a piano in their house. That was literally a piece of furniture. The girls weren't playing it, nothing. So I went to her and I just told her, I said, I'm happy to mow your lawn in the summer. Okay, every week, and I'll even throw in vacuuming your pool, and I will shovel your driveway in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can practice on your piano at least three, four days a week, and she was like, 
Absolutely. Wow. Without, she was like, she needed the help. Sure. I needed a piano. So I did that for a year and a half. And your before. dad's advice came through. If you, yeah. if, if you want it that bad, you will find a way. Yeah. But he was like, those new shoes you want though, forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. <laughs> no. So it was, it was very cool though. And I was like, that's my parents. I, I that's awesome, man. That's beautiful. on her piano for a year and a half. And the girls then started studying piano as well. So it was like brought music into their lives, you know? So it was good. No, it was a good thing. Yeah. That's my, my dad was the same exact way. I had to earn everything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Everything. And I'm glad yeah. for it because, you know, I look at the generation today and I'm not trying to pick on the generation today because I don't want to be that guy. And I find myself yeah. constantly going, well, it was different in my day, you know? Yeah, right. But, <laughs> but it, <laughs> I walked to school uphill both ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, it's, you know, they, it's just, it is, it is different. Uh, you know, sure. and everybody's trying to, and I, I have people come on the podcast and they say, well, maybe kids are working smarter these days. Do They don't have to do as I much. I guess time will tell, you know? Time will tell. Time will tell. Yeah. How do you think having arts programs in schools enriches the lives of students? I think immensely, immensely. And it, it, it concerns me when you have schools that are cutting back on that. Um, I think it's so important for kids um, in the ages of development, um, these foundational ages, that they explore their creative side. And um, learn music, you know, uh, pick, study an instrument or get involved with the performing arts in some form or another, um, or even the visual arts, you know, and, and as, as painters or sculptors. Um, I think it's really important. I think that because we all see the world around us and we can all express what we're seeing in some form or another in one of those mediums. Um, and it just, it opens a person up. It gives a person the ability to be more empathetic to the people in the world around them. Um, I just, yeah, I, I do believe it's really important. And it does, it concerns me when I see that the arts are being pushed aside as, as a non-essential. Yeah, it, That's can, it concerns me as well. That's why I asked you. And I knew you would obviously be a proponent. And it's important. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who's listening, just know that, you know, locally, your schools and the funding has consistently on the cutting block to be taken sure. off. And we cannot do so. that. This is, this is, there are some people that are going to create their entire careers out of these arts programs. And we need to be able to facilitate those opportunities for these young youth, that, the youth that are out there. Yeah. Vincent, how do you process your feelings when life throws you a curveball? You know, um, I've always felt it's interesting that I, 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 I'm always relatively hopeful, you know, about my life, about life in general, even though I can be honest with you. I mean, it hasn't been easy the last few years. It's, I've gone through some ups and downs. And, um, but I've always held on to that belief as a promise that tomorrow is a new day. I've always done that. And I, there are nights that I go to sleep at night and I could be filled with anxiety about something or whatever the case may be. Um, but I always just remember, just get through the night, you know, and the next day it's a new dawn. You just don't know what could happen. And oftentimes what does happen is something changes at 180 degrees the next day. I've had enough experiences like that in my life that I trust it now, you know, um, 
So that's that's what that's basically the the ethic that I try to hold on to, even when times are tough. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's always uh, it could, that any opportunity is there for a rebirth, you know. So that's important to me. I, I like, try to stay optimistic in all ways. I like that the tomorrow's a new day. Do you think when you said there's times where you've the next day there's been a 180 degree turn that's happened? Do you think manifestation no. has anything to do with that? It could. I, it very well could. Um, I, because as I said, I remain optimistic. I'm always hopeful. Um, I try to remain more of the glass half full than empty, mm. even during dark times, you know. Um, and I have always, it just seems like something happens. A lifeline is thrown at the right time, um, at different times of my life, you know. Um, sometimes it's, it, it, the, the, the struggle goes longer than I'd like it to go. Uh, but again, uh, but lifeline seems to come to me and I know that it's just hard. I, it just, because I know that this is, especially with the shutdown and the impact that that had on so many people, yeah. um, the psychology, the psychological, um, you know, the, um, burden that was put on so many people. I mean, we're not, we're, we're talking more about the physical of people, the illness itself, but the other illness that's there is the psychological trauma that people experience. And, you know, recently, um, my girlfriend, she said to me, she said, you know, years ago, you, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody in your life, even some people personally that weren't, that didn't experience cancer on some level. Okay. Mm-hmm. Could be a friend or a, a loved one, a family member your, or themselves. But today it's suicide. It's really hard to find anybody that hasn't been touched by suicide right. on some level or the other. Yeah. And because of the shutdown, that has literally been like the, the percentages have gone skyrocketed. Yeah. And that's really scary. And that's sad. And I just, if anything, that's what I'd like to just impart about anybody that's going through difficult times. There's yeah. always a new day. I mean, I don't I, know what that day is. Gonna be. I saw that. It was an uptick that was happening with suicide, obviously, well, well before the pandemic, it was happening. Mm -hmm. What has changed, do you think? Why, why has like suddenly people go, it's hopeless? Is, is it, I don't know. I mean, I have, I, I asked myself that question. What do you think? Well, I think we're living during really intense times. That's for sure. Um, people seem to be much. I honestly, I think social media has something to do with it. I really do. Um, I, I consider it to be anti-social media often because people they attack one another um, mercilessly, yeah. abusively, and oftentimes they don't even they don't you don't even know who they are. It's like they they've got a pen name that's different or. Some fake account um, that, that just wants to attack people. So it's it's they're doing it um, just without any consequence to them, and I think some people take it to heart and it gets hurtful. It's destructive. It's abusive, mm. and I think especially in young kids and teenagers, they really you know they take it to heart. Well, who are just um, barely socializing as just becoming them their own unique selves. And still just understanding that. And then suddenly they're dealing with adult situations. And we talk a lot about on the podcast about social media and the prevention or taking the precautions that are necessary for parents, 
Um, sure. Especially I have three young children now and you know, they're all looking at TikTok. They're looking at reels. They're looking at the things right. and they're, you know, that's real life to them, whether they, you know, they can distinguish right. between that or not to that, you know, they don't, they don't know the difference between sure. what's, what's real and what's not. So it's pretty scary when you think about it in the yeah. context of a child's mind or a young person or a teen. And absolutely. I, and I think you absolutely. hit the nail on the head. I think it absolutely um, with the social media and everything being at everybody's fingertips now and sure. what they're exposed to. Everybody at such has a young access. Age. Everybody has access to pretty much anybody and anybody control another person and be abusive to that person, hurtful to that person. And it just, it, it literally does throw a shadow upon that part of the person's heart, you know, and that head, their head. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's very strange. It's almost like being beat up in a dark alley in the dark that you can't even see who you're, the person is that's attacking you. It's a strange, strange dynamic, social dynamic. That's why I consider it in the large part, not in every way. I mean, there's some benefits to it as well, but I do see the component there that's more anti-social media than social media. Yeah. You know? Are you a person who believes in destiny or do you think we ourselves can control and shape the life path? I, I do believe in destiny. I do believe in that. I believe that every person has been created with a purpose um, every person has been gifted with certain qualities uh, so that we can coexist and we can contribute to the world at large. Um, and I do, yeah. And I, but I think that we all go through life thinking that it's, that we're all going to be here forever. And I think that because we have a sense in our side of us that we have a sense of eternity, you know, we feel that we're eternal beings, but yet we know that we all have an expiration date. We know that, you know. Um, we know that day is going to come. We just don't know when it's going to come. And I, so yes, I do believe in destiny. I believe that we have the capacity to impact other people's lives in some, the most subtle ways. Um, it doesn't have to be some grand effect, but just by being there and being somebody that listens or is attentive to another person's needs to let them know that you're there for them. Mm -hmm. Those that's, that's what life is about. You know, we're social creatures um, and we are dependent creatures upon each other. So yeah, I, I do think that destiny has a lot to do with it. So, yeah. We've spent a lot of time together over the years, but you have oh, sure. you've never taken a ride in the Jacob Young time machine. <laughs> okay. you, you didn't know that I had one of those, did you? I did not know that. I did not know that. I hope I'm dressed for the, for the affair. Hey, man, you, you're going you, you're gonna to look great, actually. It looks like what you're wearing right now would fit right back into the 70s. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it all comes back around. <laughs> it is, uh, no, it you, you look great, actually. Um, what Thanks. advice would you give 16-year-old... Vincent, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, what could you tell him that you know? Uh, well, um, you know, I would say that especially during my teenage years, um, it was it was a crazy time. I was, I could say that I was living a very destructive life at the time. Um, I was, it was an, an exploratory phase of my life. Let's put it that way. And I've always felt like I've had a joie de vivre, you know, joy of life. And I wanted to live life to its fullest. So I wanted to experience anything that I could at that time. So, but that could also lead into very destructive behavior. 
And by the grace of God, I didn't end up killing myself on numerous occasions, and it certainly could have happened. Um, so I would say probably you don't need to live your life like that. I think that I feel I felt at the time that I was experienced a, sort of a sense of FOMO, fear of missing out, you know, and wanting to know what this is like and wanting to know what this is like. Some things it's not as necessary, you know. Um, I think I would be much more rational in that regard. But at the same time, I, at least I came to a point earlier on in my life when I was 21 where I realized that I didn't have to do that anymore, that it was time to live my life um, as an adult and um, put those things aside, you know, and start to be focused, purposeful, you know, in my, in my daily activities. And that's what I did. I absolutely did at that point. So, yeah, that's what I would have said, that I could have done that earlier in my life. Um, but I'm grateful that I had music during those early years, because for me, that was a saving grace that at least gave me a discipline during the time of my lack of discipline, which was pretty significant. Um, so that gave me a focus and I'm grateful for that. So wonderful advice, really great advice. Yeah. My sponsor, Boys Town, their motto is he ain't heavy. He's my brother, meaning in our lives, we've all had somebody who's carried us. And it is a beautiful story. And I always like to reiterate it because back 100 years ago when Father Flanagan was just establishing Boys Town, there was a, a disabled child and all the boys would take turns bringing him around to the ball games, taking him to class. They didn't have crutches for him. They didn't have wheelchairs for the other kids yet, yet. Yeah. And uh, father says, hey, isn't he heavy? He ain't heavy, father. He's my brother. Meaning we've all had somebody in our lives who's carried us. Who's carried you? I love that. I love that, man. So who's carried me, you said? Yeah, who's carried you? Did you? Well, as I said earlier, my brothers and sisters, without question, and my parents. I mean, the sacrifices they made. My family, overall, um, even my extended family. We're we're a very close family. We really are. Um, And I, so I would say, without question, it would be my my family, my brothers and sisters. Um, I love them all with beyond description. And as just as I would be there for them, they've always been there for me. And like I said, there've been dark times in my life that I'm grateful that I had them to lead on. So I'm very, very happy for that, you know? So, yeah. And I'm sure they're Um, equally as thankful. Yeah. In that regard, I'm sure they are for for each other, all of us. Um, You know, it's like when you grow up together like that in a family, um, I'm thinking about my sister, Audra, who I love her so much. She lives in Atlanta and I go to visit her often. I remember when (laughs) we we finally moved out to Long Island and we were in our house and my mother and father called us all together to sit at the kitchen table and share with us that my mother was pregnant again. She was the sixth child. And the reaction of all of us was like, oh, no, no. Oh, come on. <laughs> we're like five kids are like, no, we're going to babysit again. Oh, yeah, man. We're like, <laughs> <laughs> I swear, that's exactly our reaction. They're yeah. like, it's okay. It'll be okay. You'll get through it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and she's amazing. I, know, I love her. And she's always been. She's, she's like, I've dealt with this many times already over. <laughs> I'm like, oh, when is this going to stop? They were good Catholics. They were, you know, they were going forth and multiplying. Um, that's my parents. So yeah, at the time. And mm-hmm. so it was that kind of a thing, you know, and I, I got to tell you, man, 
you have a beautiful family. I mean, oh, Kristen's man. beautiful. Absolutely. I know her personally. She's a wonderful woman inside and out, but your kids, man, your daughter's singing oh. is spectacular. I'm loving that. Loving that. She, um, she's all of the man. I mean, Luke, I've, I've met him, you know, over the years. Um, uh, and he's just, yeah, he's a great kid. I saw him last time I saw him was at the Emmys, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. With you. Now he's 13 and he's a brooding teenager that, you know, <laughs> things are just not cool. I'm, you know, dad's not cool anymore. But, uh, yeah, that's but, right. but, but yeah, but thank you so much, man. Yeah, they're, they're wonderful. Yeah. And Molly, she, who you're talking about, she loves to sing. And yeah. that was just something that we just discovered and, and she wants to do. That I was never, awesome. never that pushed was, any of my yeah, kids. To do any of that, and they just, you know, she just like, you know, she's always like, "Hey, can we sing this today? Can we do that?" So I have to pick up the guitar, you know. I don't have to. I love to. I love picking up the guitar, and like, she's always got a new song, and she's always eager, and she's kind of got that ear where, if she listens to something once, she's pretty much kind of got it, like the melody. I love that. Pretty amazing. And I'm like, I wish I would have had that ability. That's an innate gift that she has. It's inherent in her. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I mean, it's great. I've got my four kids. They're all wonderful. I've I've got two granddaughters now. You know? Oh man, yeah. that's fantastic. A one one year old and three year old. The one year old is going to be two in May. That's but um, yeah, it's been pretty amazing. Yeah, it's so wonderful. That's you know, it's funny when people say that to you. When I had my first grandchild, how do you feel about it? I'm like. I'm, you know, I'm 62 now. Back then, I was 59. So I'm going. It's the time. It's yeah, okay. This, what this does it a, matter? I'm not 40. I, <laughs> you know? Considering my parents were tw- in their 20s. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm like, no, I think I'm good. I'm okay with it. And I'm it's enjoyed. And now there's another generation that's coming. You know, mm. and they're wonderful girls. They're beautiful, and I love their 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 vivacious and. It's really, it's, it's really exciting to see that, you know, with them. Congratulations. I want to say, Vincent, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It is always great catching up with you. And I always learn a few things whenever we have a story and a heart to heart. Um, And hopefully we'll be able to get to see each other uh, here soon. I know. I mean, given where you live, I'm going to be visiting back there again. Probably I'm hoping I can get there in May. And, um, and get to see you that. And that'll be awesome. Yeah. Don't be That's a stranger. Great. Let's, let's go down to Shem Creek or let's go check out yeah. some downtown action and, and catch uh, yeah. up, man. I would love that. I, I love you, brother. It's I, great. Great uh, hanging with you. I love all you right? too, Vincent. Thank you. Yeah. It's wonderful. That's about all the time we have for today. Real Conversations with Jacob Young, the mental health podcast, is sponsored by Boys Town. At Boys Town, their slogan is, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. And for over 100 years, Boys Town has been saving children, healing families. They're only one call away, and they're always there to help. Please, please go to boystown.org for all the details on how to access Boys Town's health services, or you can simply go to yourlifeyourvoice.org. And if you're in crisis or need immediate help, please call the trained counselors at Boystown National Hotline at 800-448-3000, 800-448-3000, or you can text voice to 20121, 20121. Thanks for joining me on Real Conversations. I'm Jacob Young. Till next time, love yourself. Love each other.